welcome back to the Lightly Literary Podcast, the only book club podcast that has no issue at all fending off any ghost, demon, succubuses. No problems doing that. We do it all the time. Feel free to bring it on. Tempt us at any moment. We've got loose human jaws here that we can use, and uh, we're mm-hmm. really comfortable doing so, Amanda. Yeah, bring it on. When was the last time you had to fend <laughs> off a demon succubus? Maybe this weekend? Yeah, yeah, it was pretty pretty easy, actually, because sure. you know, it was like, whatever, I've got this demon jaw in my, my back pocket, you know? And you've got mom strength now. Yep. The legends, yeah. the legends of parental strength are far-reaching and powerful. Mm-hmm. I was out this weekend seeing some friends, and being out during COVID is still weird feeling. And so I, f- I fended a few off. I had to fight off a few of those <laughs> demon succubuses when I was just out there in the streets, <laughs> having to adjust one weekend at a time. <laughs> Fending off the succubuses as well as uh, any COVID contamination. <laughs> That's right. One karate chop at a time. One bullet, I guess, would be a better for what we're about to discuss. One bullet at a time. Yeah. If you have yeah. absolutely no clue what we're referring to, that is because you've stumbled upon a book club episode on The Gunslinger by Stephen King. If you don't know anything about the podcast, welcome. We are again, The Lightly Literary Podcast. I am Travis, and my co-host Amanda is here. Hey, Amanda. Hello. We are here to do a spoiler-filled episode and discussion, and this is part two of our discussion of The Gunslinger by Stephen King, so hopefully you're in the right place. If you've clicked on this episode and you're thinking, wait, I don't know what that book is, or I didn't listen to part one or episode one or whatever, I don't want to have the second half spoiled for me, then feel free to go back into the feed, find our book recommendation for that episode, for, for that book, I mean, or part one of the book club, where we spoil the first half. But yeah, today's going to be part two. We'll be discussing everything in the book at this point. It's all up for games. It's all fair game to analyze and dissect and discuss. So if you're a spoiler averse, just uh, be forewarned about it. It is a book that you can kind of spoil and then also kind of can't (laughs) because it's clearly a a cog in a much larger machine. So I would just say that in advance, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Amanda, anything that I missed? Oh, social media plugs. Hello. Duh. Not doing very good at this podcast hosting gig. We do have social media accounts that you can follow and we encourage you to. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at the Lightly Literary Podcast, all one word. So if you want to see what books we're doing and promotions and such. Of course, I naively thought last week was the week I would catch up on promoting, and I didn't catch up. So maybe this week is the week. You always got to have that hope, you know? You always mm-hmm. got to gotta be marching to your own dark tower. You know what I mean? Yep. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. And I will keep continue the march. The march is uh, endless, ceaseless. Anyway, so yeah, let's get into this. Again, we're going to be spoiling the entirety of The Gunslinger, which is the first dark tower book by Stephen King. Let's jump to some highs and lows, Amanda, if you are prepared. I am ready. Ready to scale to the summit? I am. All right, let's find ourselves in the death pit, the gold, the Golgosh, the Golgagooga, <laughs> the Golgagooga. Yeah, I never heard that word. <laughs> I was like, I've never seen that word before. <laughs> yeah, the gold, the Golgamesh, the Gilgamesh. Um, Ooh, we're going to start nice. with high, highs and lows, like I mentioned. This is a good way for us just to kind of broadly talk about the second half of the book, what we enjoyed and what worked and what we didn't enjoy or did not work for us. Amanda, start us off with either a high or a low. Sure. Um, I'll start off with a high. Um, and what I really enjoy about um, King is, is his style. And in this book, um, I really enjoyed his descriptions. And I've even talked a little bit about this um, in the previous episode, as well as in when we read um, his um, collection, Different Seasons. 
Um, he's great yes. at creating atmosphere in his works. Um, his descriptions are great at setting tone, mood, and setting. It's Everything is just beautifully done, I think. Um, so I, I really enjoyed all this. And I, I read some reviews where they were like, oh, his language is so flowery and blah, blah, blah. I was like, it's meant to be in this case because it's a it's meant to be this high fantasy, like full of tropes and everything. And I just, I loved mm-hmm. it so much. And so... Um, I pulled a quote from page 209 in my copy because I have a different version than you. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Um, And so it says, he he trailed off, unable to describe the change inherent in that mechanized noun, the death of the romantic and its sterile carnal revenant, living only a forced respiration of glitter and ceremony. The geometric steps of courtship during the Easter night dance at the Great Hall, which had replaced the mad scribble of love, which he could only intuit dimly, hollow grandeur and the place of mean and sweeping passions, which might once have erased souls. This is um, when he was telling Jake about um, his uh, coming of age and stuff like that. Yeah, um, yeah, Jake was like asking him about it. And Mm -hmm. um, so Roland was explaining, um, kind of seeing his mom and Martin, who's like the betrayer. Um, Hold on, I have to sneeze. That's okay. Excuse me. So um, he was explaining um, that scene, and and Roland is not somebody who's great at uh, verbalizing. <laughs> He's also not right, great at right. really understanding like complex thought or anything like that. He's a he's a very simple soul in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. um, and so this description is great because it's beautifully described, but also it's it just shows how he can't. Roland himself cannot quite grasp what it is that really bothers him about um, what he witnessed during that time. Yeah, totally. I think it's the writing is indulgent for sure, but you're right. It because it's evoking, and I mean, and clearly since the ending, the series has ended, right? Now I don't know how it ends, or you know, I haven't read the other books, but he right. clearly did want to establish a true epic of scope and scale and everything, and so he yeah. and so to to have that language to be investing in that like you put it like high fantasy sort of descriptions of much formality kind of like grandiosity Mm -hmm. in a way i think is fitting and and also he does it and he weaves it pretty well with the western tropes too that he's playing up quite a bit too the the world Mm -hmm. the bleakness of it all of that so i think for the most part it does work i will um i'll use that as a segue to a low that i thought i found now it's odd when I was racking up my highs and lows and then also looking over some other things for this episode, I think I'm going to mostly be critical of it, but it's strange because I enjoyed reading it and kind of breezed through it, had a lot of passages that I thought were intriguing and moments I enjoyed. But then for some reason, when I was thinking back over it and rereading some stuff, I think I'll, I'll mostly be critical, I, I guess, but it's odd though, because it didn't feel that way in the moment. So not sure mm-hmm. what the disconnect is there anyway. Yeah. But I do think the writing though, when you go that aggressive for, with your tone, with your world building, and you want to be both, you want to indulge to set the mood, but then you also want to indulge at the same time to, well, you want to indulge in the, in being ambiguous. Basically, there's a lot of world building here, a lot of references that are purposefully unanswerable to a new reader, you know, things that you cannot mm-hmm. understand references that will not make sense within the book ever. And so I think it's, it plays up the dire and somberness well, 
but it does to me buckle a couple times pages that just were more I don't know like more nonsense than I than t- than I took away anything other than like I get the atmosphere in general I get that this is a grim quest that he's on with no clear success chance of success and he's just yeah he's almost like a, a zombie like person on this mission or something anyway I pulled a quote from my page 170 about that just I think shows this in part it says finally they camped no echo from the man in black returned to them perhaps he had stopped to rest too or perhaps he floated onward and without running lights through nighted chambers the sewing knight cotillion the kamala as some of the older folk called it after the word for rice was held once a year in the great hall the gung and swinger went the proper name was the hall of grandfathers but to us it was only the great hall and then later according right as any spring dance surely is the gunslinger laughed um deprecatingly the insensate walls turned the sound into a loon-like wheeze in the old days the books say it was the welcoming of spring what's sometimes called new earth or fresh kamala but civilization you know he trailed off unable to describe the change inherent in the featureless noun the death of romance and the lingering of its sterile carnal revenant and then it's literally the quote you read <laughs> so yeah. before that yeah yeah and i was i was gonna pause there because like wow you chose the same one um uh, it works well and then also so there's two things, right? You you get both references like Sewing Night Cotillion, Kamala, Great Hall, Hall of Grandfathers, New Earth. These are all capitalized nouns in my book, and maybe those just aren't in yours or something. And then to immediately nope. go from that, yeah, so, that, so there is that difference. I know that we have two different editions. But then to get that, but also have things like that you have insensate walls turned the sound into a loon-like wheeze. You have the sterile Carl Revenant living world like you read. I think he just, there is a way to balance those things. And often when you're presented in the same couple of short paragraphs with both a kind of tone setting uh, playfulness with the language, and then also you've got the proper noun, you know, wall of proper nouns in front of you, it can be a tough line to walk and find the balance and i just don't think the book finds it every single time also again Mm -hmm. though the book is aggressively doing ambiguous world building that it has clearly no intention of answering things in this book and maybe the series is just that way the whole time and so i think if you're on board with that approach and you enjoy that and you don't need those answers as i really don't i think it actually works a lot of the time and i think it sets the right you know for playing up western tropes in a dying world it's again very bleak it's very desolate and everything uh, the writing mm-hmm. i think holds that up mostly fine but i felt like there were passages it's funny that we chose the same one for different reasons but yeah i feel like it did it did kind of buckle at times and then again i guess there's the issue that in this revised version that he did just include more language from later on in the series i think yeah so that um i think ties in really well with my uh one of my lows that is also kind of a high for me it was like so Mm -hmm. this book is really campy Right. Like, I mean, there are mm-hmm. just so many yeah. tropes in this novel so far. There's um, the he's almost like a knight. Right. So the knight's quest, the gunslinger's quest, there's evil magic. There's ladies in distress and ladies who are super murdery and seductive. There's even a damsel in a tower at one point, Susan. And um, mm-hmm. there's I mean, it's, it's the Western tropes, too. Right. The um, the gunslinger himself and, and the. Uh, you can just almost imagine he has like a Clint Eastwood like stare, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely, definitely. A, I believe then, an influence that he has acknowledged. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I think he was like nineteen at the time that he wrote the original, the the one that I have. So. 
Yeah, the you well, see a also lot of that. this was these were four novellas that were published uh, years apart too, and then he brought there it together as a novel. So these are actually this is not even a novel in the traditional publishing sense. It's more in the mm-hmm. how a novel might have been published in like 1900 or you know in magazines and yeah. snippets and stuff like that. So yeah. Um, but I, I do like the campiness, actually, that, that does not bother me at all. I, I enjoy picking out those tropes and the archetypes and just kind of, like, appreciating those. I mean, I love spaghetti westerns for a reason, right? It's just... Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, yeah. I just love that stuff. Um, but I will say that I, I do feel a bit weighted down sometimes with just how many illusions um, can fill up a page, including... Like for me, not so much the allusions to um, the world building that he doesn't elaborate on, because I only get like a couple of those in my version, but all right, the allusions right. to like biblical references to um, Arthurian legend and to um, other like odysseys and stuff like that. Like I, it's, it's a lot. And if you really don't know like if you are not an avid reader and you, you you don't pay attention in like your English classes or your history classes, you're like gonna a lot of these illusions are just gonna be like, whoop like mm-hmm. you're yeah. not gonna get yeah. it and and it can be a little overwhelming just how much is kind of stuffed in there, right. Um, right? But other than that, like the the campiness of it is just something that I find quite pleasurable. I think too. The tropes it pulls from, especially from Westerns, I would say, which to me were the most dominant. Obviously, there's other things here, like you said, very quest-like, pretty traditional knight-type story, you know, running on some kind of mission. Uh, even the Gilead world he was in seemed kind of feudal in some ways, like the way they had a king mm-hmm. or kind of picked a leader. There seems to be some kind of weapon inheritance going on, stuff like like It has these yeah. odd, yeah, medieval qualities or something in lingering. But to me, the dominant motifs come from westerns and i i guess just the desert setting too does a lot for that too it's pretty spare and simple and everything and so to me i when i'm drawn to a western which is not frequently like it's not a genre i enjoy i I do not like spaghetti westerns it's not something i've gone out of my way to like educate myself on in the world there have been westerns i've really liked especially some modern ones like when the coen brothers do stuff in the in that motif or what's the other there's another really popular director i think anyway but the thing i enjoy about them the most i like cormac mccarthy novels for example but i just think mm-hmm. it's often it, it has to accompany some kind of idea that connects to america it's just such an american genre and a uniquely american point of view i you could debatably say tracks that we read is is a type of you know western anti-western mm-hmm. though that, that was much more about the colonialism obviously but right. anyway i just think it has to be grounded in some kind of history helps a ton because it when you at least have some kind of idea message you have kind of an angle on history you want to maybe think through in fiction then it at least helps and the tropes don't feel as like assaulting or simple or something or boring to encounter and in this book I mean, I just think this is just such clearly a, a domino and a line of dominoes that I don't even, I don't even think this book, when I finished it, I, I don't think it had a mission. It was just kind of like, I guess it, that's just, it, it's clearly such a part of a series or it's, I could, I could see why I read some things on the, I think it was on the Wikipedia page that he does view this as a book, the series, The Dark Tower, and that it just so happens to be made up of seven or eight novels. But it's like, this is a book, not like these novels are, are not even meant to stand alone, really. And I think I got mm-hmm. to the end of this one just thinking like, 
I guess I know a bit about Roland. It was kind of like an introduction to Roland and give you a taste of the setting, hopefully intrigue you with a couple of insights and a couple of the plot points and happenings and everything. But it just... It is pretty loaded up with those tropes, and because it doesn't deliver the things I kind of want out of a Western, even though it had strange moments, for example, with religions and things, I don't think this Mm -hmm. book has any coherent thing to say about belief or cults or religions or ascribing uh, understanding or faith or it, 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 it'll poke those ideas, but right. Especially in that town. But I don't think you can come away from this with some coherent, like, Oh, that was really intricate. Or, Oh, there's this, these, these dueling things happening or, Oh, he really meditated on it. It's just, I don't know. It it just wasn't quite delivering on that to me enough. So the Western stuff, I thought was okay. Again, as a genre, I don't even really love. I, I thought it was like a fun enough time with some kind of brutal parts too that I enjoyed. But yeah, the tropes. I, how about this? I, I had another high low, kind of like you did. We'll see what you think of this. The book relies twice pretty clearly and heavily on prophecies. So there was the one with mm. the succ- succubus when he like forces it out of her. And then also, of course, the story ends with a prophecy with the man in black using tarot car- cards. I'm sure you love that. <laughs> I don't know I if do. those are familiar <laughs> cards. Are those real cards? Uh, yes, they are. Oh, okay. Some of them are, yeah. Excellent. There you he, go. He drew a lot of cards. Was it seven cards? Seven, yeah. Seven or eight cards, yeah. And I think he even said a couple I made up or something. He admitted that there's yeah. some of his own design or something. So who knows what his, yeah, how powerful he really is. But anyway, I just think... That's a storytelling device that is so first book in a series tropey. That's like aggressively so. That's a, and I just, I, I, I'm mixed, right? Because I enjoyed the succubus scene a lot. I thought their banter, the way he was kind of curt, rude, and even like assaulting to her, and how she was pleading, but also clearly, you know, powerful in a way. And she had, mm-hmm. she, she felt kind of ghostly to me, just the way she was speaking, and also again, just desperate and alone and everything, fitting for that world, of course, that the, even the ghosts yeah. are like just stranded and alone and just uh, in this strange ritualistic circle that doesn't make any, no one would ever be able to explain the, you know, how that. It worked or something but anyway i so it's i enjoyed some of that bantery stuff but then you get to the end of the book and the book's conclusion is literally we just here's the next plot for the next probably book or two books or something so it's just like it just is another propulsion to be like and now the series can keep going i but i don't think yeah. you leave with any clear notions of or you know any clear ideas um about how this world fell apart or how to salvage a dying world or I don't know. It, it just felt very first book trope or, or let's get this fantasy series rolling. Here's some prophecies. I don't know. I'm not going to say that's amateurish to rely on that twice for really key moments. I will say the fact that the succubus prediction about Jake basically played out exactly how she said it would in kind of a, I thought that was kind of limp. So I, I guess to me then that prophecy wasn't that intriguing. It didn't engage me much, but I thought their banter did. Anyway, so that was another kind of high-low mix for me. I enjoyed some of the way that banter worked with the succubus, but then to do that trope twice and to have the book just literally end with being like, eh, prophecy, huh? Time for book two. I was, you know, it's just a limp ending. I think it's interesting that the, um, both the succubus and, and the tarot cards, right? Like the they're both associated with um, with evil and with like dark arts, right? Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. meant to be, so it seems to indicate that like anything that is able to foretell the future is something that like you should not be knowing this and you're just playing with something that's evil. So yeah, um, yeah. I think that ties in with like the, 
the the play on like the biblical figures and stuff like that. So I think mm-hmm. we'll see more of an explanation later. But yeah, it's it's a good point. It's it's a, a way to propel you forward into the series, the the tarot cards, um, <clears throat> and the even the oracle though, because like the the oracle tells us like more about like how Jake is gonna die. But even before that, Roland knew that Jake was the trap, and he yeah, knew, yeah. right? That because the even the the jawbone, right? The demon, yes. that spoke, the speaking demon, warned him, like, oh, as long as um, the boy is with you, the the man in black has your soul in his back pocket. Yeah, yeah. No, it's so. Yeah, I the maybe the two high moments for me in the back half were one when he had the interaction with the succubus, and then two when he had his memories in Gilead, especially with is it is it Court his mentor, the man he fought, yeah, and Court. maybe killed. Hard to say. I thought so for my only just uh, straight up high moment. I I do think that the train section is I just like the flashbacks. I think of course it's also unsurprisingly the most coherent world building in the in the book. It's when the book is least ambiguous and is most generous with actually helping you understand Roland and his journey. So maybe this is just maybe my reading is just too basic or something. I, I didn't get on board with the more experimental stuff. But I just think even the trial against court the twist to show his cleverness and his kind of savagery to sacrifice the pet descriptions in that section of just the the violence and the gore of it i thought was pretty effective i could see then how king you know kind of cut his teeth so to speak writing (laughs) more horrifying literature and like things Mm -hmm. with violence for example so i just yeah i think those that moment really worked for me well and i think it was efficient it was again slightly more clear so at least then i had some clear storytelling elements frankly just to latch onto except for imagery and mood setting which the rest of the book just felt like an an imagery exercise with like intense mood and tone bits which i yeah is can be really fun to read for a bit i I don't know if it sustained my interest for the whole novel but yeah even i was just pulling up some of the descriptions from when he's fighting with court he i was trying to oh yeah there's one on 195 David fell away broken and twisted. One wing flapped frantically at the ground. His cold, predator's eyes stared fiercely into the teacher's bloody, streaming face. Court's bad eye now bulged blindly from its socket. And then later, there's some there's some other descriptions, just really brutal stuff about yeah. how, uh, yeah, the, uh, of Court in another uh, paragraph. Court's fist struck the bird once, breaking its back. Again, the neck snapped away at a crooked angle, and still the talon clutched. There was no ear now, only a red hole tunneled into the side of Court's skull. The third blow sent the bird flying at last, clearing Court's face. And then there's just more. I, I guess I won't pluck more of them, but it's, it's a little more economical. It's also less indulgent writing, I think, in that scene, maybe because it's an action scene or something. But yeah, I think that chapter though it was paced kind of oddly and had some strange moments too and a real a real absence of jake too i think is <laughs> was kind of odd in that part <laughs> just kind of a non-entity in that whole section anyway but yes i think that was a high for me just those clear moments of okay th- this is what his father was like this is how he was raised this is what the, the world may, you get a hint of what it may have been like or, or some part of it this feudal strange feudal world so i think that was probably the high for me in the back half yeah, I did enjoy those bits as well. And, and the scenes with that particular scene that you were just describing, so brutal. It's just like, yeah. man, yeah. <laughs> like getting through that. Uh, whew. Um, 
But yeah, so the other high for me is um, King's characterization, uh, especially with Roland. And I think that this is really important for this novel because I look at this novel as like perhaps um, aside from the purpose of obviously like giving you some of the lore and like propelling you into the rest of the series. I think mm-hmm. of this novel as like the one of the primary purposes being to introduce the reader to Roland and to... Right, really right. understanding Roland because we see everything from his perspective. <clears throat> so I think that he did a really good job with establishing the character of Roland um, because we know that he views himself as a romantic and they, he kind of mm-hmm. like delves into what that means. Um, we know that he views his hands and his skill as both like a curse almost and as like a, a livelihood, right? Because yeah, yeah. He, once he reacts, he cannot stop himself from reacting. Yeah. Um, the hands did their trick, I believe, is there or right. something. You know, the reload, the hands did their reloading trick, you know. Exactly. It's like almost a, an entity onto themselves. Um, we know about, um, he, he knows that he's not like a great thinker, right? Mm-hmm, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. um, we, so we, we find out all these pieces and I think that um, King did a really good job of instead of just like telling us that that's the kind of person that Roland is, we get all the tidbits of Roland, including his backstory in order to better understand Roland as a character. And I think he did a great job with that. So um, an example that I pulled is from page 151 and it says, mm-hmm. Roland shook his head slowly. There was a lesson here. This is after um, they saw the guy hanged. Yes. <clears throat> there yes. was a lesson here, he realized. Not a shining thing, but something that was old and rusty and misshapen. It was why their fathers had let them come. And with his usual stubborn and inarticulate doggedness, Roland laid mental hands on whatever it was. So we're in the flashback and so we get the... Um, the story of the, the hanged um, cook. What was yeah, hacks, ha- hacks, or I, yeah, hacks. I wanted to say Drax, but I know that's a that's a current Marvel <laughs> character. I think. Oh yeah, yeah, just on the mind. But I think it's hacks. Yeah, it, yeah, I think it's hacks as well. Um, and hey, you remembered the names, so good Ooh, job, big time for me. Huge, huge. <laughs> hard to hard to miss the Man in Black or the Gunslinger, both of which are you know repeated plenty and also pretty straightforward titles. So those I have for sure. Um, but we also see like he he's aware right of of how slow he is and and he knows that he has to work at something in order to really understand it, and we can see that with the. Um, laying mental hands on whatever it is is such a great little phrase that yeah, just shows how he has to like tackle things in order to really understand them yeah he shoots at the man in black many times he tries to ta- he tries to strangle him he's yeah he, he has he yeah. has one solution to things to problems yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that much becomes pretty clear by the end of it even when he knows it it will fail <laughs> yeah it's a good one any other highs or lows because i have one low that i think i want to end on do you have any others oh, yeah i've got one more i've got one low that i can yeah go for it uh, quickly throw out there um so my my biggest beef with this is just the depiction of the women so far um, there are none in the, the sucky best i guess <laughs> i mean yeah, or, well it, there's there's alice, alice there's yeah. sylvia pittston there's the the succubus and then there's uh roland's mother Right. All of these women are weakened by their need for men, for physicality. Right. Mm -hmm. So Alice, she is 
Uh, she like wants to sleep with well everyone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, she needs to fill fill that void. Sylvia Pittston is the most powerful character, kind of, because she becomes impregnated by the man yeah. in black, and she feels like she is all powerful because she's like pregnant with a, an angel. Right. <laughs> Her I had forgotten about. I undersold yeah. it in that regard. It was, I, I yeah. remembered Alice and the succubus scene, but yeah, of course. Yeah, and then there's there's the succubus, the oracle, um, who is both empowered, right? She feels powerful as she is um, having her way with Roland, but then she also needs it so badly, so she's also weakened by that. Yeah, so she can't. Lonely. Exactly. And then with um, Roland's mother... She has power in that she is the wife of Roland's father, right? Who is like the head gunslinger or whatever. And she's also the mother of Roland. But then she is seduced by Martin, who's like the bad guy, one of the bad guys. And so she is then depicted when anytime that she's in Martin's presence, the two times that we see them together, she's seen as like weak. Roland depicts her as very weak. So we have like just women are only described in their relationships to sexuality and to the men. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah it's never. And I, I thought the succubus's voice when they have their banter in exchange, I thought she was well-written, but it's, it's well-written to be pleading desperate and have right. a little, a hint of sinister, uh, not sinister. What's the adjective form of sinister no wait sinister is the adjective <laughs> what's the noun form of is there a noun version of that word anyway she has a hint of of being sinister about her that i think yeah. came off really well in that in that scene and yeah no but it's not it's not engaging she's not complex you know she doesn't have motivation or some you know backstory really that we can tell she's just another like world oddity another life-sucking force clinging onto this you know forsaken world or something so she's right just fits in with that with the mood of the and the tone of the world right yeah no that's fair I think let's end with Milo. I want to do it on purpose because in terms of plot and just even Roland's development, it's probably the simplest thing I could say, could say or ask. So were you moved then by Jake's death, which was almost directly and unambiguously foretold by the demon, by the succubus? Did that scene move you? I knew that it was going to happen and mm-hmm. we knew, well, I knew in my version anyway that Jake uh, also Roland... Knew. <laughs> Yeah, and said, and said it everybody. a couple of times. <laughs> yeah, like, right, was, why yeah, are we doing this? <laughs> well, Roland was like, you know, kind of playing with the idea in his mind that maybe he would let Jake live. Maybe he wouldn't have to make that decision. Maybe right, things would work right. out in the end, right? So there was always that little bit of hope <laughs> that Jake would survive. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, even though it was foretold, I think that it was still, for me, um, the his final line, uh, go then, there are other worlds than this. I was like, I know, okay, we're going to see Jake again. He's going to show up in another world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To me, it Jake is a, is a character, is a part of the story. I, so I was not really moved. Maybe, and part, partially it could have been because it was so clearly... It's not even really foreshadowing when it's that direct. It was so clearly <laughs> that uh, reference that it was going to happen. But then also, uh, 
they don't really interact much. It's to me, Jake is two things in the story. One, a way for Roland to mumble and explain some backstory, so the book gives you a clear sense of its world and Roland's history, Roland's story, obviously. And then the second thing, it, when he taps into Jake's mind in the first half of the book, when he meets him, whatever he did, kind of like mind mm-hmm. reading. The other thing that seems clear to me now, and I won't say much more than this because I'll admit that when I finished the book, I did just go and read the Wikipedia page for the next book because I had a suspicion about what the book was going to try and do or how it would go about storytelling, and uh, it was confirmed by that Wikipedia page. And it's just that, to me, Jake has such a clear plot device to introduce the idea of like, oh, a regular-ish version of Earth that we know, a modern Earth, a modern America even, the series is going to go there. Roland will probably go there. And so they needed to set up the, a character to show like, oh, this you're not in a different planet. Like this is probably Earth or some version of it. If all the illusions weren't enough to, you know, the Jesus man wasn't enough to hint that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like very mm-hmm. clear that, oh yeah, there's other times, including our time. And hey, we're probably going to dabble in that. And we're, you know, maybe we'll even visit that in this epic series. And so to me, it just felt more like a plot contrivance than a character moment. I think, yeah, I think the actual the falling of the train track and that whole the the paragraph that describes Roland his response as being automatic you know it's sort of like he said it's like he automatically leaped across the gulf and just abandoned him or it's the same writing that portrays him as kind of this almost mechanical entity right of of vengeance and revenge it's not even he acts you know as you've described his violence he acts so much without thinking that it's just this is his quest he's undeterred right he's unwavering he's going to commit to that quest all the way and so i mm-hmm. thought that writing was was pretty effective but as a character moment and everything i was just like okay well you got you you sucked the character backstory marrow out of him out of the bone like it's he you you used him to dump roland's backstory a character could just sit there and be an empty vessel for that and you alluded to the fact pretty clearly that there's a, a modern america or modern earth that this story is going to dabble in uh in the series pretty pretty clearly so i mm-hmm. yeah it did not move me at all i would say it read more as just kind of like a plot fact but i don't know that was my response to it i i guess for me it, i didn't read it as like i knew that that's also one aspect of, of jake's character but for me also like the emotional bond um which i know is like weird because we don't see a whole lot of communication which is not roland style anyway it's not like he's you know uh, somebody who talks a lot in the mountain uh, <laughs> he does you know when he's when he's starved and rambling he <laughs> tells them all about his childhood well that was a way of kind of filling that silence right that roland was saying mm-hmm. that he had yeah. to fill the silence because they both knew what was coming yeah um but by laying bare his own past and stuff like that he felt closer to jake and and jake you know there were seen like one liners or whatever where jake like he looks at him like a hero. Like when when we look at Jake's um, life in New York, like nineteen seventies mm-hmm. New York, it's yeah. it's empty. It's very empty. It, it, he has no relationship with his parents, and they don't take care of him really. Whereas right. Roland like saves his life, only to you know later sacrifice it. But like mm-hmm. he saves his life. He um, teaches him things. He shows him like how to camp, how to do things, how to be a man. Almost, it's like a coming of age for Jake in a lot of ways yeah um, which is why they have that bond even though there's not a whole lot of 
discussion between the two of them. Yeah, it feels it did feel empty to me their relationship. I do he does save him from the succubus also and there is a passage uh on page 140 their relationship gets its most development on that page on my page 140 because it says something I guess I could pull the quotes but it it essentially confirms Roland loves him now, he feels love for him. But it's just sort of it's a bit abrupt for me then or something or it's just a bit shallow it's it's a survivalist relationship they have they're <laughs> they don't have any connections of any emotional note or psychological note it's just hey i can help you survive you don't know where you are you know come with me kid and it just feels a little too passive to me i don't jake just felt like a real non-entity i he did refuse to go on back on the train car when they were made that one like pit stop and so I thought there might be some more conflict between them there that we could maybe, maybe Jake would have some more to say other than, you know, Jake's conflict with him. It comes back to the prophecy, basically. Like, I know I'm going to die. Why are we doing It's like, can't you, I don't know, maybe it's because he's in some kind of afterlife or something, Jake is. I, I don't know if that's true, but wh- wherever he came from or however he got here, it's clearly just making him, he just feels a bit hollow to me. Like, I don't think he knows where he is and his character doesn't, it's just kind of passively in this world. But yeah, it's, I just, I, I'm glad the book committed to that, I suppose. Um, he does. It says on 140, like I said, uh, it says the moonlight of Jake's face reminded him again of a church saint, alabaster purity, all unknown. He hugged the kid and put a dry kiss on his cheek, knowing that he loved him. Well, maybe that wasn't wasn't quite right. Maybe the truth was that he loved the kid from the first moment he'd seen him, as he had Susan Delgado, and was now allowing himself to recognize the fact, for it was a fact. And then the black man or the man in black laughs from far away. Anyway, yeah, it's. Maybe just too abrupt for me or something, but it didn't, mm-hmm. that scene definitely didn't affect me. Also, we can litigate this. Did he sacrifice the kid or did he just choose to save himself? Like, I, could he have saved both? It To me, the way the scene read, the collapsing of that whole thing, it's like he, he couldn't have had it both ways. Either they both die or he gets to live because the kid had already fallen. At least that's how I read it. Maybe I like misread the action or something, but it, it didn't seem sacrificial to me. Like he obviously chose not to try and save him. But the whole thing was coming down, so it's... I'm not sure how... I mean, I guess we're supposed to read it like he sacrificed him because the book says it, but it didn't... I thought it was going to be much more of a direct thing. You know, the man in black says, like, should I kill him or no? You have to say the word or something like... Something a little more clear. It felt more like an accident, and he just tried to survive the accident, if that makes sense. Yeah, uh, well, on mine, it's pretty clear that he doesn't. So the boy plunged and one hand flew up like a gull in the darkness, up, up, and then he hung over the pit. He dangled there, his dark eyes staring up at the gunslinger in final blind lost knowledge. Help me. Come now, gunslinger, or catch me never. All the chips on the table, every card up but one. The boy dangled a living tarot card. The hanged man, the Phoenician sailor, innocent, lost, and barely above the wave of a Stygian Sea. Stygian Sea? Yeah, I think that's and right. And then, so he's he's Did between, you? so Roland had jumped, and he's looking back at Jake, who's hanging on the edge is, of the pit. Is the train track structure not collapsing? It is collapsing, but it's like well, that's he could have reached that, over to help him. But that's the thing, though. Then it's not really, it's not as much a choice to kill the kid. It's much more of a, we're both going to die if I try and save you. Why would we, why would we both die then? It's sort of, I just think that changes the calculus a little bit. Of It's mm-hmm. not quite, it's not quite as much of a choice if there's something else that's going to come kill him and you don't have to kill him. It's just like he was naturally going to die without you. 
in that in that imaginary whatever scenario it's sort of like it's like the difference morally between you're running from a hurricane next to somebody and like they start to get sucked back and so instead of trying to help them potentially killing you you run away and save yourself versus like you shooting someone dead right it's just like it's a different moral calculus to me i don't i felt anyway it didn't feel as it didn't feel as sacrificial and harsh it was more survivalist quick math to me i but again the book does portray it as a sacrifice i just thought it was i just thought that choice was going to be more aggressive and direct morally to like really portray roland as somebody who's almost cruel and that just felt more like a survivalist thing to me like practical or something pragmatic of like well if i tried to save you we'd both die and then what would be the point of that right either i Mm -hmm. get to live or we both die and he just was like i'm living then and so anyway but I think the book, it doesn't quite... I just thought the scenario was odd or something, I guess. Yeah. So, that makes sense. Yeah, that was my final thoughts on that on that scene. Um, let's move on to some imaginary essays. This is our second analytical part of this episode where we each have crafted an imaginary essay prompt for one another, and we're going to respond to them and talk through them. As a clarification point, we haven't actually written essays to respond, more just like outlines and thoughts, sketched out some ideas. So if you haven't listened to this before, no, we did not literally make essays in response. We just have some ideas and outlines. I'll go with mine first, Amanda, because it is, I think, the most basic question. And to me, it felt like the right question, actually, given just the style of this book and its presentation. My essay question for you is simple. Will you continue to read this series if you haven't already done so? Which I guess would change the question. So what about what about it? Anything? Plot, style, world-building, characters, whatever, gripped you or didn't grip you? And again, the big question is, will you continue now? Um... Yes. So <laughs> I have read uh, the drawing of the three and gotcha. the one after that. But again, that was like years ago. That was I mean, okay. such a long time ago. So I don't even remember what happened. And I think um, given the epic scope, because it goes to seven or eight, I think it's still a fair question then. Because it's still, you're yeah. still staring down another at least probably 3,000 pages if you did want to, you know, see it through. Which I definitely do. I think it would be well worth the read. Um, So for the plot, I just, I love the Arthurian quest, actually. I think that um, it's such a classic fantasy uh, storyline that pulls us through, but the writing is what really makes it shine. So we have, you know, familiar um, archetypes that I could, you know, go through and enjoy, but also there's like new things that are thrown into it that make it even more enjoyable and in new ways to describe. And I also really liked the uh, philosophy thrown in at the end there with the, the world regarding the world building aspect about time and the image that is projected into his mind of the, the single blade of grass, purple grass um, and, mm-hmm. and the idea of like knowledge and, and how worlds are really insignificant um, in this grand scheme of things. And I, I mm-hmm. want to see how that develops throughout the series as well. So I enjoyed that. And then of course, like with, with Stephen King style, I just, I, I enjoy his stuff. Like this is the other book that I remember reading, um, which was the, the eye of the dragon was his other like high fantasy 
very much Arthurian quest type novel. And I remember enjoying that a lot as well. Um, and I just love the way that he writes. I think that even, even though he does a lot with foreshadowing and stuff like that, when, which can seem a bit over the top and overused, it doesn't bother me. And it just, I don't know. I just, his style of writing to me just is really enjoyable to read. And it's really mm-hmm. engaging because I get both like there's a lot of action going forward and there's also great descriptions of, of the, of the things in the world and of the, uh, the main character at least. So mm-hmm. I, I enjoy all of that. <clears throat> as far as the world building, obviously there's going to be so many worlds to discover because we've already been introduced to, um, like three worlds, right? We've got Roland's past world, which is nothing like the current world he's living in. And then we also have Jake's 1970s New York. So we've already encountered like three different worlds in just this one novel. So uh, the, and we know that we're, there's going to be like time jumps and stuff like that, which uh, affect what world we're going to be in and stuff like that. Right, that's, right. that's all in the future too. And I find that that's going to be, really interesting to to read as well and to see what other worlds there are uh related to this this earthly world i guess um (laughs) there's a lot to unravel which i i look forward to unraveling and um as far as characters go like man like roland is a cold badass right he is Mm -hmm. definitely on a mission he will sacrifice anything he's very plotting (laughs) Mm -hmm. when it comes to everything he does. Um, But I I like him as a character, I think, because I also like Spaghetti Westerns, is he's very much a Clint Eastwood type uh, character where it's like... Right, never not smoking a cigarette. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Never not smoking. Um, Constantly squinting at people. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) That's right. Um, and I, I look forward to seeing even more of his like past life as far as like how that shaped him as a person as well. Um, especially like with his dad, because I feel like more information about his dad and his mom and his mom's relationship with Martin will be explored more. Mm -hmm. And, um, Jake, I feel like we're going to see him again. And I'm wondering too, if like with the betrayal, if he's going to become like an adversary or if he's going to be like, because he's kind of depicted as a saint and, and like a martyr and all that stuff, will he be forgiving and be like a, like a Jesus-y type figure where he, you know, comes back, meets him in another world and is like, all is forgiven, let's be besties again. So um, I'm, I'm kind of interested in seeing how Jake shows up later. Yeah, so. yeah. I yeah. think that's fair. Yeah, that's, I... I will say that I'm pretty confident that I won't. I also, I did, I did spoil some things for myself out of curiosity, especially with the next book. I didn't read the whole summary, but I was very curious. I, yeah, I guess I don't want to say too much more as to not spoil that book, at least for people who might. I, here's, I guess, what I'll say. I was curious, given Jake's prominence in this story, if a lot of the rest of the series would be going in some way, either back in time or a parallel universe scenario or whatever, to like modern America a lot. And it seems like that's what it's going to do, like quite a lot of. And that for some reason does not compel me. I felt like this world 
And now, now, see, I don't know, though, because I, here's, I guess here's where I'm at with it. If you told me the rest of the series never leaves his shattered, strange, de- decaying world, and that's, the, that's the, where the setting is, I'd probably be almost... I probably would be almost excited to keep exploring it. I don't think I'm interested in a version of the story that does a lot of time jumping, parallel universe jumping. And I, get, I don't think I can fully articulate why. It just doesn't, I just don't think I want this writing copy and pasted onto a setting from recent history in America or the modern world or something. It just doesn't. That does not excite me in any way, and I, again, I don't think I can fully articulate why. But if, but if you were to tell me, like he just he's in whatever you want to call it, Gilead, th- this universe thing, wherever he, wherever he is, wherever you want to call it, I, that would entice me quite a bit, I think. But I think this, I, and I've also heard the famous anecdote about the Dark Tower series, of course, is that King had an accident in real life, like almost died, and then wanted to finish the series, and then apparently he like writes himself into the series in some strange way. That was, before uh, reading this, which I had never had before, if you would have asked me anything about it, that's the one anecdote I would have known, because it's kind of so famous that there's like one of these books, he's like a character in the books, he's like, and he's mm-hmm. like, I guess, I don't know if he's making the story in the story then or some weird thing but yeah there's some strange he does like really strange things connecting this to real life and then not doing that and some kind of stuff like that i don't know if i'm interested in going that meta with it if this was like a self-contained universe or something and maybe didn't want to go quite as ambitious as i think it might want to i think i'd be more interested but it does seem the sprawl of it to me feels maybe a little bit too much for what would grip me i think I do remember in one of the later books that I read, I do remember specifically for whatever reason, a covered wagon, mm-hmm. like going through a desert again mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A, and a covered wagon and some um, like Oracle spheres of some sort, like yeah, like yeah. glass balls um, <clears throat> and, and like another, another skull of some sort, but like a yeah. longhorn. Skull. Well, the to this is, I guess I'll just mark as a quick spoiler, but to, to spoil the plot setup, not to spoil anything about it, but the setup of the next book, which is even spoiled in this book, which is the, as the man tells him, you got to go do these three things. There's three, yeah. I forget what he calls them, doors or something. He's like, there's three things. You go find them, you do the three things. Well, those three things are he goes to New York City at different time periods of time. And it, that was the part to me where I was like, eh, if it was. I just want to this world to be its own thing. And I guess we're just never going to get that, right? Because from the outset, you can tell it's kind of weird earth <laughs> from the references and right. all the lullaby and all that stuff. So I just don't know. I it, The idea of the next book being like, here's, I'm going to tell you three different stories at different times about New York City. And all of a sudden it's like, let me write this way with New York. But then also there's this ruinous other world. To, like, again, that sprawl and those connecting that having that be where the imagination went that does not intrigue me for some reason i just mm-hmm. i guess maybe i like my fantasy worlds to be their own world self-contained maybe that's part of what bothers me about it that it's like now i have to contend with are you doing commentary about modern america then too or am i like am i gonna have to read what you thought about like the 1960s in america and i it just 
it all just feels like it's i mean but i guess that's why people love king though because he's he takes chances like that and he's not afraid to let loose and be ambitious and stuff i don't but when i saw that because i was curious like okay what's the you know where where are we going what are we going to be doing if i kept reading that really left me cold that whole like premise of just him like rolling showing up with his guns just popping into like modern america i'm just like eh not interested really i'd rather have him in his own in his own setting or something i don't know but Mm -hmm. um it does seem properly ambitious and and strange and everything so It'll definitely be strange. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I won't say much more. I, I wouldn't consider anything I really just said spoiling because that's, anyway, it's more of the setup than anything. Um, cool. Any other thoughts on the on continuing the series? Nope. All right. Feel free to throw your question my way. I'll do what I can. I came up with a super easy one for you. Mm-hmm. Um, is Roland a hero or an anti-hero and why? Yeah, so I went, I consulted the Penguin Literary Dictionary for this one, mostly because I think even my own definition of anti hero would be a little bit culturally skewed. And I think our term is not the academic, like the way I, people would say that is not the way that academics would define it, I think is, is an mm-hmm. important thing. Because as the Penguin Literary Dictionary notes, being an anti hero isn't about being violent, aggressive, or even like rude or cruel or mean or something to put it in a simple way, which I think is how we think of it. We just think of like, if you're an asshole, but you're also the main character, you do important things in the story, you're an anti-hero, but that's really not what anti-hero gets after, at least again, not in the, I guess, more high-minded literary traditional sense. Um, This is what Penguin says about it. The antithesis of a hero of the old-fashioned kind who is capable of heroic deeds, who is dashing, strong, brave, and resourceful. It is little doubtful whether such heroes have ever existed in any quantity in fiction except in some romances and in the chapter kind of romantic novelette. However, there have been many instances of fictional heroes who have displayed noble qualities and virtuous attributes. The antihero is the man who is given the vocation of failure, which is a critical, I think, definition right? The antihero is incompetent, unlucky, tactless, clumsy, cack-handed, stupid, or even buffoonish. It has an ancient lineage, and then they just do the penguin thing where they list like 50 examples and kind of walk you through the history of that. I, mm-hmm. Given all of those adjectives bandied about, I think now Roland's quest here is clearly a failure, or at least it's like up in the air. He doesn't kill the man in black. He doesn't reach the tower, but he has another thing to go do, right? He's got another leg of the quest. So I I don't think we could say his whole thing was one a failure. And he just, he's highly competent at this mission of vengeance that he's on, mission of, as we learn, revenge, right? Because it's pretty clear. I don't know if he, is it Merlin or Merton? The version of him from before, the man in black? Martin. Martin. I don't know if he killed his father. I think that's what the story implied. Did it ever just say that? It didn't actually state it. Okay. No. Something, well, some betrayal happened, some wrongdoing, and he's clearly just seeking revenge for that, roughly speaking. And so he's just highly, he's he's relentless. He's like a movie, you know, monster villain, or he's like a serial killer, like Jason Voorhees or something, because he's... Yeah, he's unwavering. He's dedicated to his quest. I, so I think he's actually a pretty clear-cut hero. Uh, to me, then, the twist of it is not that he fulfills those anti-hero attributes, but he's a hero, but just in a ruinous, disturbed world. And so he comes across, of course, to us as readers in our world as maybe anti-hero in that in that pop culture sense. 
But I think mm-hmm. because his world is out of time, or however they phrase it in the book, like it's it's a it's past time. It ran out of time. Whatever. It's like a, it's a detritus kind of you know slapdash world of just like broken bits. I think that he, because he's operating in that world, it all feels very anti-heroish. But I think he's a pretty clear-cut hero. I'll, I'll run through some of the examples or things I pulled for this. We know that he is ridiculously capable and competent with his one profession, which is shooting the guns. <laughs> so, yeah. and or as like survivalist, <laughs> right? Because he can, he knows how to ration resources. He's disciplined. He can survive in the wild. He like has basic competence and all that stuff. He fires the arrow into the dark to measure the water. I, it's just like, he's like basic survivalist Western man. And, you oh, know, yeah. and on page 70, I'm not, I won't read all these quotes, but there is a quote about him. You know, he fires the gun without thinking. He shoots 12 bullets off seemingly instantaneously. And then, rela- and he, you know, he kills 40 people in that gunfight in the town. He's almost like a maniac. He, he, there's a quote in there that says he was screaming the whole time but didn't realize it. So he's almost you know bloodthirsty, yeah. it seems, like almost manic. Anyway, so we know he's capable, though. It's not like he's unskilled and buffoonish or clumsy. So that doesn't work. We know that he has a history with, if not cleverness, at least resourcefulness. The fight with Court, I thought, was the primary, the story's clearest moment to like really give us a bit of Roland. He's ruthless. He's going to be clever. He's relentless. He obviously did this trial before he was supposed to, so he's a bit brave or reckless, you know, to take your pick, depending on how you interpret that. Um, on page 120, his father does call him. He says something like, you're not as smart as the other kids. You're not clever like them. You don't figure things out, but that'll help you. You know, we don't need you to be a moral agent. We need you to be kind of a blunt instrument. But even then, I think within the story, he's, again, if not clever, he's at least resourceful. And so... That, to me, it seemed heroic. You know, he, he knows how to maneuver things. He has a strategic-ish mind of sorts. Mm-hmm. We know that he's brave or courageous or pick your other adjective. On page 204, he fights off hordes of the enemies in the dark caverns. He doesn't, like, lose himself. He gives Jake clear commands. He's like a battle strategic mind. You know, he's, he's what do they say? What's the cliche? He's sort of calm in the face of danger and in the presence of fire. I feel like there's some cliche I can't think of right now. But he's at no point is he totally flustered or freaked out. He handles the succubus uh, tactfully in, in a sense. I mean, it's also kind of a grotesque scene. Um, but it's like he has he goes with a mission. He he does the drugs to prepare himself. You know, it's like he takes a pretty practical approach and directly goes and deals with problems. Right. So it's again, I don't know if you'd go full on brave or courageous. He also doesn't save Jake. So there's that part. Maybe that's not yeah. then courage. Um <laughs> But he, in other times, he does show that he does not shirk from danger, though. And so he has some trait like that. And then, of course, he's just so dedicated to having revenge and, and like, discovering, learning what why these things are happening, why his life has turned out this way, how come the man in black has taunted him and why everything like that. I mean, you could, again kind of leverage the criticism that he's almost maniacally dedicated and maybe it's again leads to jake's death directly or indirectly i would cover the morals of that earlier i think it was a little more indirect than i, I wouldn't quite be as harsh on i feel like the some of the stuff he did in the town with the especially with the woman do you remember talking about that in episode one in book club one with alice yeah with the pregnant no, no no with the or pregnant with, woman or with sylvia yeah that, like some yeah, of that the, stuff the felt kind a of lot rapey. more oh yeah some of that yeah. felt a lot more brutal and kind of really like a harsh introduction to me than the Jake scene even like the Jake scene seemed more like a practical survival decision of just kind of being like, ah, eh, well, you know, 
that's you know it's not his fault he didn't make the train thing collapse he's just happened to be there yeah. <laughs> uh and whereas in the other one it was like you're doing you're taking a direct morally disgusting action like a anyway so I, even that given that his dedication is so unswerving is so clear and so i that's my list i think given all that I would just say clear-cut hero. I don't. Maybe I'm like underreading it, but at, at every turn he does show competency, dedication, even you could say bravery, with the Jake exception in there. And so, I to me though, it's just it's the world that puts the tinge on it. If that makes sense, it's like you're looking mm-hmm. at a hero, but through a, a paint a uh, painting of glass that's like dark or something. It's like this is world right. is ruined. Therefore, his actions also seem disgusting and ruinous. But it's I just think it's more of the world influencing it than that. That would be my response would be that it is, he's actually a pretty traditional hero, but in a, in a context that it, that is not. And so, yeah, that that's my take so far. Yeah. He's the, I would, I would say he's, he's very much like an Arthurian hero where each of the knights, like when you read through the knights, they're all like heroic and they all, are dedicated to their various quests and stuff like that. But they also do some really bonehead things, especially when it comes to women. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. did you ever read Le Morte d'Artour? The... No. Yeah. So it's like, I mean, the guy, the knights, they, uh, they, they don't treat women especially well, mm-hmm. <laughs> which, yeah. Hey, Roland as well. Um, and they they're very set on their missions, but they also are flawed. So I, I think that he is, uh, in that sense, just like them. They they're all heroes. They're all considered heroes. They're only considered not a hero if they completely abandon their quest or they like you know straight up murder kill, you know somebody for no reason. Yeah. When I think when I think antihero, I think like you ever read a uh, Confederacy of Dunces, the kind of no. comedic. It's a comedic novel that takes place in New Orleans. It's got a bunch of characters, but the main character, I think his name is Augustus or something. He to me is an antihero because he's actually pretty incompetent and inept, and he kind of just bumbles his way through life. He's like a morally, he's he's like very morally rigid, but also that that makes him like have such critical flaws and like leads to his like improper actions all the time. And he miscalculates things all the time. It's like, he's bumbling, you know? And I just, that's what I think of when I think of anti-hero. So I guess I'm a little more in line with the, the penguin dictionary literary version of an anti-hero where it's like, Mm -hmm. this is a main character who will be, they don't even have to be reprehensible. They just have to be ineffective in, in some kind of way. And I just think Roland is, is, is he's basically never ineffective. Yeah. At least in his, in his quest, in his world, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so, yeah, Yeah. that, that's my reading on Roland though. I think it, yeah, I, I like the question because I think it also gets to something simple that the penguin thing cleared up for me, the dictionary, I mean, cleared up for me, which is just, I think our definition of antihero these days in pop culture just means like a person we don't like much or something, or like right. an asshole, <laughs> which I think yeah. he is those things. So it's like, you don't have to like him. He's kind <laughs> yeah. of an asshole, but, and maybe even more repugnant than that, depending on we, in book club, when we talked about that scene, it's a, it's a tricky one to unpack though. It's a very odd scene. So I don't, yeah. I'm not even sure if we did it justice, but we definitely tried. So, but e- accepting that or ignoring that one, 
Dawn. I think he's otherwise just like kind of an un, slightly uninteresting, like you put it, badass who's just kind of a dick or whatever, <laughs> or is kind of yeah. just curt. And it's, so it's like I could see why people would be like, oh, he's an anti-hero. And it's just like, no, he's just kind of a silent, you know, aggressively competent hero. Anyway, yeah. any other thoughts on that question? Uh, no. Excellent. All right, let's move on to the Lost Pages then. This is the second to last segment. This is where we'll briefly opine about something we wish would have been in the book or just something we wish could have been used to flesh out, maybe another chapter or section or another kind of addendum. I think, well, why don't you take it first? Because Should we say the obvious thing? Which is the answer is the rest of the series. This is <laughs> This is maybe the most aggressive. I got into a weird habit in quarantine. This This anecdote will make sense in a second. I started at least five, maybe 10 different series during quarantine and then did not read any of the other books in those series. I just kept starting stuff. I don't, I, maybe I was just getting curious or I just wanted to sample a bunch of stuff. I'm not really sure why I was doing it. I, I didn't think about it that much. I was just was enjoying doing that. And of all the, those things I'd recently do, dove into, this feels the most incomplete, but a, as a writing tone piece, it's very appealing. It, it's a lot of intrigue in it, but it's the most aggressive like just a taste first bit like clearly building to something else it doesn't even feel like a complete book to me really it's just so mm-hmm. aggressive it feels like a chapter which I, I is a thing i is he's king himself has kind of said that this is his opus and i think he views it as one book and that these are almost chapters that are just novel length chapters or something and this book just has right. that so the obvious answer for lost pages to me here coming back to this it's just like the rest of the series is the lost pages man this is like a chapter of a book yeah. So that out of the way, what about yours within the book, obviously? <laughs> um, so I, I was thinking of something that I didn't think would be put into the rest uh, that, that wouldn't be answered in the rest of the series. So that's oh, what I was trying to focus cool. on. Cool. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. So for me in that, in that sense, it's going to be Roland's time in Tull, the, the town where he killed everybody. Um, I'm, I'm just curious about like, what all did he do there aside from eat and sleep with Alice? Because like, that's pretty much all we saw before, like the murder scene. So the the massacre, cause he was there for several days, even though time is kind of funky. We know that he was there for several days cause it was stated that it had passed, um, for quite a while. And then Alice also, and, and he felt the urge to continue on his journey, but then Alice asked him to stay and he agreed to stay. Right. So I'm like, why is he staying for this girl? Like what's going on between them other than just sex that he's like, okay, yeah, sure. I'll stay for a little bit longer and postpone my quest. Those like, hamburgers. Those hamburgers. <laughs> he's refueling. Um, um, so I'm, I'm just curious about that. And and curious about like what did he do he's like supposedly he knows right he says that he knows that there's a trap that there's some kind of trap and he's like is alice the trap no it's it's not alice so like what does does he spend his time like kind of figuring out what the trap could possibly be like does he just sit in the tavern all day i just i don't know for me i was just kind of like what's happening here because it's just the only scenes that we see he eats he sleeps with her he goes to um, Sylvia Pittston's sermon, and then he kills everyone. Right, That's it. right. But he was there for, like, at least a week. 
the, it would be fun to have more time with Sylvia and the townspeople because the sermon from there, the action kicks off so quickly and it's such yeah. a turn in the, in that storytelling, that, that plot and that storytelling moment that I, yeah, I think more world building in regards to, well, what, what religion is this exactly? And how else do they practice? What other traditions, rituals do they have going with this would have, I think would have been nice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. My obvious answer to this is going to be just more time in Gilead. Another 50 pages. You could sprinkle it in anywhere. It could be when he was in Tull. Oh, these townspeople remind me of this town I visited once. Oh, these Mm -hmm. just anything more from that. Those sections worked really well for me. And I maybe they worked well because they were so brief and tantalizing then. Maybe, Maybe in that sense, King actually found the right balance. But it just... I don't know if the wasteland itself was ever going to help us meaningfully understand the world other than that this is a wasteland that King depicts, I thought, pretty well, like for the most part. those the, That tone, that mood, that hopelessness, uh, ruinousness, all that stuff works well, I think, pretty much the whole time. But I just think mm-hmm. then more clear-cut world building, give me something to grab a hold of in a slightly more helpful manner would be the obvious answer for me. So just more Gilead stuff. Yeah. Obviously, we get – so this is like the childhood book. I'm assuming in the next couple books there will be more like when he's a young adult, now that he's got his guns, he passes trial. What, what does he go do? <laughs> you know, what does a gunslinger do, I guess, other than just vi- enact violence, which maybe that's maybe they're just sheriff's deputies of this world or something. So I don't I don't expect that, but just more childhood tidbits, things with his family would be nice. Maybe get a slightly yeah. clearer sense of how the kingdom is run there and what exactly that society felt like, which again, there's teases of it and hints, but that would be my pick for sure. Yeah, that's. Uh, I, I think that's going to be stuff that we encounter uh, later in the series, which yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to when I read. For sure, yeah, the rest, definitely. Sure. Okay, let's wrap this episode up with critical assistance. This is when we go outside of ourselves to other critics or people writing thoughts, blogs, whatever. This today will be a video for me. Anyway, we'll, we'll reach to a critic and talk about what they thought and kind of reflect on their ideas about the book. See what they think. Amanda, why don't you start us off? What did you pull for critical assistance on this book today? Sure. I pulled from um, a site called Fantasy Book Review. Oh, clear enough. And uh, (laughs) and, uh, the person who wrote this review gave it a 9.5 out of 10. Okay. Um, And his name is Floresiensis. Is that a username or is that a last name? (laughs) I don't know. Maybe it's it's a a handle. I don't know. Okay. That's that's what it was. So... um, he wrote down, few books can grab you and draw you into them quite as quickly and completely as The Gunslinger. In my experience, the first book in a trilogy series can often take some time to immerse you as a reader, possibly due to the unfamiliarity of the characters, but also the new location and place names. This is especially pertinent for high fantasy titles, but this book hooks you from the very first page, from the very first sentence even, and then he goes on to talk, like, analyze the first sentence. Um... So I thought as well, I agreed with him in that, like the first page when I read it, I was like, oh yeah, this is great. I'm going to enjoy this. Like immediately I knew that I was going to enjoy this novel um, just from, yeah, the first line and, and the the second paragraph. I was like, mm-hmm, this is great. <laughs> yeah. So. It, it's in my cursory looking at criticism and doing some other 
just looking around to see what people thought of it, it maybe has earned a weirdly, and I think it's also because fans of it who probably end up obviously committing and finishing the series and everything, it's got a weird first sentence itis reputation of people being like, "This is a masterpiece of a sentence," or something. it's like it it yeah. does a, an effective job and it is intriguing. I just it, there's some elevated reputation where I'm kind of like, eh, "Okay, maybe that's a maybe people are a bit uh, too complimentary about this sentence," but yeah, it it definitely has. People seem to who buy into it seem to think that it it's masterful in setting things up. Mm-hmm. Um, he goes on to say, um, "I hold King to be a master of the art of storytelling and characterization. His books can often be hefty tomes, which leads to cries of filler and padding from his naysayers. But I've enjoyed almost everything I have read of his, regardless of size. And that brings me to an interesting point." It is sometimes forgotten that King is every bit as good at the short story format as he is at the thousand page epics and the Dark Tower series showcases his skills at both mediums. The Gunslinger is a relatively short book around the 200 page mark and absolutely perfect for those wondering if the Dark Tower series might be for them. It can be read easily in a day and there is not the abundance of world building and characterization that marks the beginning of many epic fantasy series. These vital ingredients come of course but gradually at key points during the tale's progress and never at the cost of momentum. So I agree with the idea that it's not um, the gunslinger is not going to be an overload of lore um, or anything like that and and that he does do a good job of kind of like sprinkling bits of information throughout and I agree I think that you might not completely agree but um, I, I agree that the 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 lore information the, the information about his past and everything does not interfere with the uh, the progression of the story itself. It does not seem to make the story slow down at all for me. No, I thought it was fairly readable. The, the, the thing that adds density to it, I tried to pull a quote for this earlier, is when it tries to do, hey, we're going to do some slapdash world building. Maybe not even, again, I think it's intentionally vague, so maybe not slapdash, but kind of really light just noun dropping, but then also King wants to indulge in the, in his writerly pursuits and his rhetoric too. Those two things, when they don't mesh, I think it's pretty awkward, honestly. It's like you're trying mm-hmm. to both comprehend some reflections or some kind of dis- digest some kind of, again, rhetoric, some figurative language or something. And then also it's just some random nouns that you know are never going to be mentioned again or they, one more time in the book. Or it's, it does, it's eh, I, but I do think it read well. Yes. And I, it's weird, like I said at the beginning of the episode, it's strange because I, when I was filling out the outline, when I read the book, I enjoyed it pretty well and liked it and thought it was pretty readable, had some memorable scenes in it and everything. The character work I was maybe more critical on but yeah in the end it was kind of like yeah okay I, I enjoyed this but yeah looking back for some reason I was more critical in this episode than not but yeah I, I would agree to that for the most part yeah um, and then he also says that the Dark Tower boasts some of the best characters in fantasy so Ugh. I was like um <laughs> I don't know like I think Roland is a really interesting character and I think the man in black is an interesting character but as I stated before like the women are just like not 
not great. <laughs> yeah. Not great. Well, um, well, that's telling because he that's the series. He's this is a classic. This is a review from someone who's has clearly likes the series and has probably read it. Right. So it's it's that's a crucial distinction. He's that is not a sentence that reviews this book. That's a sentence that reviews <laughs> forty two hundred pages of a thing. <laughs> yeah. And so maybe yeah. yes, but this book definitely does not. That would is would be my take. Yeah. Um, and he says, my advice is simple. If you're not sure whether or not um, to embark on the Dark Tower series, then I recommend that you give The Gunslinger a go. It is a great little book. And if you are anywhere near as captivated as I was, then you are in for a treat as the next book, The Drawing of Three, is my favorite of all and sure to cement an ever-increasing love affair with the series. Um, so I thought that that was a good recommendation because I agree. Like, if if you want to see if the rest of the series is something that is interesting to you. You know that the style is going to be the same. So if you enjoy the style of it, you like that kind of um, pulpy, uh, really romantic throwback to like questing and stuff like that. If you're a and d fan, right? Like mm-hmm, you might, mm-hmm. you might enjoy this series. Yeah, I would, I'm hesitant. I think I'll let you read the next one and then fill me in because I, as soon as I learned that plot outline I discussed earlier, I immediately paused myself and thought, I don't think, I think the things this book series is going to attempt are not what I want it to attempt. And it may, yeah. again, the the things that felt threadbare to me in this one, uh, I feel like if it doesn't work out or that he doesn't pull that ambition off, then it's like that would unravel for me, I think, from what I was looking for out of the, out of the series or something. But no, mm-hmm. I think it's, I would say it's an excellent example of just like a tone, tone setting, a bit of world building in that regard, if not in the details, then in the feeling, the, t- as the tone, as we said, a bunch. So I, I would agree with all that for sure. It, it does set its, it's pretty quick too in establishing itself. And so I think it's a fair test. So yeah, if the rest of the series does find the voice, then, or maintain this voice, I guess I should say, then I could see it being appealing for sure. Yeah. Cool. I pulled one, a unique one today, Critical Assistance, from a YouTube video. I don't follow a ton of people on YouTube. They call themselves booktubers, which is a clear enough, uh, is that a portmanteau? Whatever that is. <laughs> I forget the the <laughs> literary term for that. But yes, it's a pretty clear combination of things. It's people on YouTube who recommend books, do book analyses, that kind of stuff, talk about literature. There's one person, though, I do follow, and his name is Daniel Green. He's a channel that only focuses on sci-fi and fantasy literature, and so he has a review. It's about a 10-minute video of this book up on the, up on his channel, so check it out. I'm going to pull a couple quotes. These are obviously pretty brief because he didn't write. This is not written, obviously. It's spoken, and I'll do the best. I did the best I could to transcribe these things, so I'm sure some of the quotes aren't perfectly the same. Anyway, this is from some of Daniel Green's thoughts. One of the quotes he said was, setting up of tone was done many magnificently the vibe and the feeling was palpable when and yeah i would agree with that i'm not sure if palpable at this point is like it's kind of like um visceral it's almost like a cliched description that i'm not sure has meaning anymore so it's like so overused but i but i get what he's going for and i would agree and i think that of all the things the book does well that would probably be number one that'd be my feeling yeah i that's definitely one of the aspects that i like most about um king's writing is his ability to set tone and Mm -hmm. and create like an atmosphere just yeah he's he's amazing with his descriptive language and his imagery 
Yeah, and he doesn't hold back. As you mentioned, people leverage that as a criticism that he takes too much time, is too flowery, whatever the description you want to throw out there is. But I think if you want to go for something, that it's in writing, it's almost, I'd rather have the uh, 10% overdone than 10% underdone version or something. I just, yeah. when I go to writing, it's because it's because I want indulgence in a sense or something. I want artistic chance taking or, or what have you. So I like to see mm-hmm. that stuff flexed. It, it intrigues me and it doesn't bog me, too. me down either. And so, or at least not all the time, obviously. Maybe if I read all 4,200 pages of this by the end, I'd be bemoaning some of it. But I think for a book of this scope and everything, it was, I enjoyed the writing. So another quote, yeah. another quote from him. I never felt super attached to anybody characters. He means, but I don't think, I don't think King felt about that or cared about that. I agree. I think Roland does make for a pretty intriguing study by the end. I did not think the man in black was that interesting, but just because I think with the Joker in in our culture, we've gotten so much Joker in the last 10 mm-hmm. years of pop culture that I just don't yeah. think a, a cackling detached villain is that intriguing anymore. And I, did, I don't think the man in black did very much beyond just kind of being a wry, again, cackling detached sort of um, almost disinterested, but clearly has a lot of power, but it's just sort of you know, operating above it and, and not quite a chaos agent in that same way, more of a taunting type of thing, but it just, Mm -hmm. I thought he was fine, but it didn't, it's definitely not, didn't stick with me. I didn't think it was profoundly well done, but I think Roland makes for a, there's enough in that character to make me think, yeah, I'd like to see him put to more trials. Yeah. I'd like to see what he's pursuing or learn more about his history and everything. And then to me, Jake is just a non-entity. I didn't, I, yeah, I didn't feel anything about the death that scene didn't work for me in that sense in an emotional way. And I just felt like he was a dumping point for some plot, <laughs> but that was just how, yeah, how I read him. Yeah. I think Roland is definitely the best character, but yeah. um, I liked the man in black. I, I think that he, especially at the end where he showed some fear and he actually mm-hmm. had yeah. some like serious moments. I, I think that gave him a little bit more depth as a character as well. well yeah. When it becomes clear that he's somebody's or some entities lackey, that's always an interesting, yeah. that's, I feel like in, oh, we're so inundated with superhero stuff these days, storytelling wise, pop culture wise, but I, so I feel like there's always that moment when you, you know, get to the final boss and it's clear, oh, it's not the final boss. There's a super boss. Mm-hmm. And anyway, this, yeah, I, I enjoyed that moment too. And I, the tarot card stuff, you know, it was, it was okay. I think the, I, I still think one of the best exchanges characters, quote unquote, was the succubus. I was really drawn yeah. to that scene. It just felt so haunt and so disturbing and haunted and everything. And I think it built up the world in a, in a very intriguing, critical way. It fit in so well with that whole world. I don't know. That scene struck me. Mm-hmm. Uh, a yeah. couple more quick quotes. There's, there's a quote. There's something about the way King tells a story. It's all very grandiose while still falling flat. Like a war veteran is making up stories and telling them to you. There's an underlying feeling that lacks authorial investment. This is an interesting thought, and I tried my best to transcribe it. I, I, the beginning of this, I thought, was had said it pretty well, because this is clearly, especially in its world building, very grandiose. Like, it's... It's trying to establish a lot. There's some complexities here. The story clearly is not going to explain to you. The falling flat part to me is just, I don't know. There is, and I think it maybe is because Roland is intentionally a pretty flat character 
doesn't undergo a change in this book, doesn't seem interested in that. He's literally flat in the literary sense. And so, but and I think right. there's nothing wrong with that even. And I think it made for good scenes and memorable stuff and, and descriptions and everything. A character doesn't have to undergo some profound transformation for a book to be good or for the character to be good. But it does, it does lead to an odd combination where it's, as a reader, you're wanting to, you're so caught up in like an intricate web of understanding and the character that you have in that world, you know, who you're walking through the world with is clearly just done with it all. <laughs> it's like there's this very complex, intriguing thing around him. And he's like, I don't give a fuck about any of this. Like, I'm just trying to yeah. find this man and I'm wandering and I'm just do, follow, doing my simple mission. And so it is a strange combination. The war veteran analogy, I don't think makes any sense, um, <laughs> to be fair. I'd, I just pulled that because that's how he followed up the thought. And I was like, I don't really get what that means. But I think the beginning, the grandiose, while it still had a flatness to it, that rang true to me. Yeah, I I agree with that. But the, the underlying feeling lacking authorial investment, I was like, mm-hmm. it's interesting. Yeah. What do you think about that? I don't even know what he means by that. What, what that he that not even King is invested in, in this in the story of Roland in this book. Is it is he trying to point to the fact that this is just like a throwaway novel as an introduction to the series? I think if that statement were to be well, there could be that. I was thinking that if that statement were to be really aggressively unpacked, or we really put him to it or something i think it would come back to characterization again just because it is kind of a flat book not of uninteresting characters but there's not there's not some super dynamic relationship other than debatably the kids and the, their trainer guy court or colt or whatever his yeah. name was. that's debatably Quite. the most dynamic like back and forth interesting conflict-based relationship because again the man in black thing is not even at the end when they have their chat for a while it's pretty amiable and kind of it, it feels it has moments of characterization, obviously, in it, but it also does feel pretty world-buildy to me. I think it also suffered a little bit from, like, first book of a series-itis, where it's just kind of like, is this... Am I meant to be reading into their character dynamic, or am I meant to be, like, looking at this prophecy, thinking ahead, trying to wonder at the clues and tease at the world and whatever, anyway? So I just think... I think that was maybe where he went with it, and that King pulls back on his characters or something, but I... Yeah, I don't... <laughs> You don't write a an opus like this and say that they're not invested. So yeah, I don't. Right. I, I did pull that quote. The war veteran analogy also like I don't get where that. I'm not sure how that. Maybe by grandiose he means the veteran has experienced something really intense, so they want to convey it. But then the flat part would be that they're not. They're like holding back or they're nervous or something. Like they don't want to go back to that space. I'm not really sure. It was it was the beginning that I really agreed with. The back half I was more like, huh. It's, Anyway, interesting. Yeah. (laughs) Final quote I pulled from this review. I do feel like the series could really grip me. I feel like the book might be the best Western book I've ever read. So my thought on that is I do agree that as a tone piece for a series and even as just a quick character intro for Roland, not that it's a quick book, but um, that it's, it's so dedicated to him. Yeah, I think it could really grip somebody. It's worth at least trying. I think the best Western I've ever read, I would. I don't even really like Westerns that much, and I would uh, strongly say no for me on that one. Though I, <laughs> I admire, and we covered this, but I admire that it really leaned into those tropes, motifs, and I think it did right by them. So I think I think it's a yeah. good Western book. It may be even great. I would, some moments I think are great, but I the best Western book I've ever read, I would say no. But anyway, that's the final quote. Any thoughts? Um. Nope. 
Yeah, I'm yeah. <laughs> and I, of all the of all the things it it was tugging on in terms of tradition, the western elements again did did kind of pop. So keep yeah. going, keep going, gunslinger. Keep wandering, keep wandering the ways. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see what you stumble upon. We'll see what you find. All right. Any other thoughts on the Gunslinger by Stephen King before we wrap this up? Uh, nope, I'm good. All right, cool. Well, we're going to now end the Lightly Literary Book Club podcast forever and become a Stephen King podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to do the se- we're going to read the series, <laughs> tackle it mm-hmm, all. Mm-hmm. I will say, as a slight side plug, there is a. This is going to be another long anecdote. I just do this too often. I'm about to connect three dots, but I'll be quick about it. There's a video game podcast I really like. On that video game podcast, the co-hosts talk frequently about another podcast that they really like that is just about Stephen King books. It's called Just King Things. They reference it a lot because they like it and they like Stephen King, so they're, they're like, they've alluded to it a fair amount. And so I did go listen to the first half of the Just King Things episode on The Dark Tower. So, Ooh. and they, they had some good insights and stuff. It was, it was more researched. They hadn't, I only listened to the first half and they hadn't really done any literary analysis yet. It was mostly like, what's your history with the book? What do we know about its publication? What do we know about King and his thoughts on it and every, all that stuff. They hadn't really gotten into the nitty gritty yet, but I'm looking forward to, cause I also didn't, I actually stopped cause I was like, I don't want their ideas to pollute mine. Like I'd rather us do oh, this, yeah, that's a good you know, it's like, I want to make our episode. I don't want to like rehash their talking points or what have you uh, for the literary stuff. But it was interesting. They were good hosts. And so, I don't know, if you're listening to this and you like King or are doing that, they, their whole project with that podcast is they're doing, <laughs> they're going to review every Stephen King book in order of publication. All of them. Wow. Yeah, they actually, they made a joke. I, again, I'd only, this is the first episode of it I've ever listened to. So I don't know anything about the project really, but they even mentioned in this one that they, they have a spreadsheet and so they're, they're, they're clearly scheduled out. And if they finish their mission, it will take them until 2028 to do it currently. Yeah. So that, but that's that. Yeah, and he keeps writing. He's yeah, he's not stopping. <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah, it'll be, might be twenty twenty nine, twenty thirty by the time he's done. But that's yeah, that that is their supposed ambition, and they're they're deep enough in that it's not a joke. They, I think they've done maybe fifteen books so far, ten maybe. So it's like. Or maybe ten-ish, but it's it's enough that it's not like they didn't make two episodes and then quit. <laughs> they seem right. dedicated to the task, and so yeah, I admire it. I don't I don't know if I love any author that much. Actually, I'm certain I don't. So <laughs> even Toni Morrison, you know, we went we were so praised that so effusively, and even that, I'm like, I would not want to read all of her books in a row. I no, I'll yeah. I'll dip my toes in later when I need a reminder of her genius or something. But I don't. Anyway, I admire it. But yeah, so check that episode out if you're curious. Here's some additional thoughts or, you know, some different analyses. They also, ooh, final anecdote I'm going to steal from them. They both hate the version that I have, by the way, and they like your version. Interesting. Which is funny, though, because it's they have classic fandom vibes about them because they also say, like, basically nothing's really that different. <laughs> but they also don't like the one that the, the revised one. They, they said it's basically like I got the updated Star Wars where George Lucas wouldn't stop tinkering and you got like the original filming of Star Wars. That was the analogy they made. Wow. And see. so ap- apparently in the fandom, yours is the more popular edition and stuff. Mine is the tried to he tried to tidy up some things, clean up some naming conventions, and make it a little less, uh, make it a little easier of an onboarding. So, well, I will say though, like the biggest difference that I think I noticed um, talking to you is just the scene with Alice, where Alice was for sure for her life yes. in mine, yes, for, which uh, just yeah. changes the characterization of Roland. I think 
Yeah, one. Right? That, it just yeah. shows how cold blooded he is. A hundred percent. That was by yeah. far all the other stuff was like, well, are you going to use this proper noun or not? Are you going to change this name or not? Right. And some subtle stuff in between. It's. I think he's just trying to bring it in line with the series because I think he changed course a little bit. So it's like, okay, now that I know I'm done, now that I know it ends this way, I'm going to go back and tweak and you know make it all line up. It feels like that to me. But yeah, the Alice moment right. to be of all the things we stumbled into, a hundred percent by accident. We had not researched that before we started which became clear in episode one so but anyway yeah yeah, that's that was by far the biggest change to me emotionally tonally so anyway just king just king things check it out as a side plug Hmm. any other final thoughts amanda uh, nope, I'm good. Excellent. Well, we have been, as always, the Lightly Literary Podcast. We do have other books coming up in order. Allow me to tell you about them briefly here. The next three books we'll be doing in order are Field Notes from a Catastrophe, Man, Nature, and Climate Change by Elizabeth Colbert, or Colbert Burnt Shadows by Camilla Shamsey, and True Grit by Charles Portis, which we I just decided on, so that one's locked in now and confirmed i won't describe them here feel free to do some searching online or as always just keep your eyes on the feed because we do book recommendations for every book we cover before the episodes go up so just look out for those and see if they'll intrigue you we thank you as always for listening rate and recommend us spread the word you know send up the bat signals or what would roland do uh leave a message in the sand i don't i don't know use the ash from your fire to write something on a wall or something i'm not sure um use a jawbone to trace lines in the dirt uh and as there you go. yeah that's how i do it that's how i do it and as always we will see you between the pages